0: Electric cars, the placebo effect, and non-religious brains. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike.
1: you has got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and
0: talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Well, hi, friends, and welcome to Ask Science Mike, a podcast hosted by me. I'm Mike McGarg, the science Mike from the title of the show. And this is a podcast that exists because I believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. This show has been uh, going on for quite a while, as you can tell by the episode number. And uh, most weeks, we get together and work through questions together and have a lot of fun doing it. Speaking of that, by the way, my friends, um, the production team had an idea. They had a meeting, and they thought it would be fun to start doing themed questions. So we'll do questions around a particular theme. And one thing that you all ask for a lot is a return of the After Dark episodes that happened way back when the show first started, where we explored taboo topics together. And so we are going to do an after dark episode in the near future about sex and sexuality. So, if you have questions about sex and sexuality that you have uh, wanted to get an answer to but have been afraid to ask, I'd like to encourage you to go to asksciencemike.com and down at the bottom of the webpage, you can send two times qu- two types of questions. One, You can email a question, and two, you can record a voicemail. And uh, for After Dark shows, we don't worry about holding our normal ratio of email to voicemail questions. We'll consider all of them and just pick the best ones, okay? So if that sounds like something you'd like to be a part of, go to AskScienceMike.com and leave uh, a question. Also, uh, really exciting I've got a book coming out April 28th. It's called You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. And uh, we are just starting to ramp up the book marketing efforts. And with that, I made something new myself. If you go to asksciencemike.com slash new book, that will magically transport you to a place where you can find all the different ways that you can pre-order that book, which will be available as a hardcover and an audiobook. And there's links to, like, everyone in the world who will sell it on that link, asksciencemike.com slash new book. Finally, uh, in the near future, we're going to be announcing some of the dates on the book tour, especially for those first couple of weeks, uh, and that'll be exciting. But just before the book's come out, book comes out, I'll be speaking at a conference at First Christian Church in Tyler, Texas, on April the 25th. And if you head to asksciencemike.com, and then click on the events button in the menu that will take you to a place where you can get more information about that and if you're listening to this far in the future uh, you may see other events listed there as well okay with that let's uh let's do a podcast let's get it started
1: hey science mike this is mason long time blister first time asker Um, I want to ask you a question about neuroscience and belief. I've often heard it said that belief is something you either have or you don't have. And I've listened to the podcast long enough and done enough research to know things about the God gene and stuff like that that kind of genetically predispose certain people to have Mystical experiences while others do not. Um, but I was wondering if you could speak to it, th- this question Is there any evidence that certain brains are not wired to believe in the supernatural? Are there, is there any brain that just, it's impossible for them to uh, believe? As an anthropologist, I realize that the metric of belief is rather overly simplistic to measure uh, sort of religious participation. I know that culturally, that what we call belief in the Western world is really not... Uh, the whole reason why people participate in religion, maybe not even the primary reason why most people participate in religion. I realize this as a social scientist, but I, I do, I was curious to see if the so- certain brains are predisposed to "quote unquote" belief, while certain others are not. Thank you so much for doing what you do. I can't express to you how much this podcast has meant to me and my uh, journey and, and sort of becoming a, an academic who, who focuses on, on things like spirituality and whatnot. I, um, I really can't thank you enough. You uh, have been so influential in my life. Keep doing what you do. I love you. All right.
0: What a fascinating question, uh, and I would expect no less from an anthropologist. I'll start by admitting I'm a little nervous um, as I'm uh, the Internet's favorite college dropout and you're an anthropologist. So it feels really strange to uh, try and answer this question for you. Uh, so, I really appreciate one that you listened to the show, and two that you said such encouraging things. And I'm going to do my best to offer you um, an honest answer and a genuine response, regardless of the fact that I'm not an anthropologist or a specialist of any kind. Um, although I do love neuroscience a whole lot, uh, it's a bit of an obsession for me. And one thing that interests me about neuroscience versus other disciplines in the sciences is there's some problems we have studying brains. Number one, um, we don't have a control of what a brain that hasn't been shaped by environmental interactions would be like, right? the Kind of the fundamental operation of a brain compared to almost any other organ or tissue or cell in an organism is to adapt to an environment. And um, that makes teasing out nature versus nurture really, really hard since neurons' job is to respond basically to nurture rapidly. That's, their, that's sort of why animals that evolved nervous systems were successful is neurons let animals uh, adapt to the environment more quickly than they could otherwise. Of course, another problem with brain science is we typically have very small sample sizes um, because neuroimaging is expensive and time consuming. Also introduces a lot of constraints. So um, most neuroimaging systems, you can't really behave in a natural way uh, while undergoing activity. You might have to be very still in order for the imaging to work. So as much as I love and I mean I love neuroscience, Uh, You know, I like to start by acknowledging some of the limitations in how we can conduct neuroscience today. One of the things that I often say is that in terms of our understanding and capacity to image our brains, we're at a similar point that we were uh, like when Galileo first started using telescopes. We are very early in looking at uh, this complex bit of the universe called the human brain. And the other thing about your question is, I haven't seen it addressed directly by experts at all. Uh, So, the really only thing I can do is offer my opinion. Gosh, that's scary. Um, But I have been researching for the last 10 years research across neuroscience, sociology, psychology, and even anthropology, you know, trying to look at how brains respond to religious beliefs and what the factors are that influence religious belief, because many years ago, I decided that spiritual doubt was an emotional and neurological condition as much, if not more, than it was a spiritual one. And since my work and and mission in life became, for a while, helping people cope with doubt, um... I studied it deeply to see if science could help me come up with more effective treatment options, if you will, for existential and spiritual doubt. Now, I would agree with you that the term belief is just wildly oversimplified when it comes to describing human thoughts, feelings, and behaviors about the supernatural and even about the world itself. You know, when I look at uh, political differences, uh, not only in the United States, but across the world, and cultural differences. Beliefs don't seem to do a good job describing the behaviors of human animals. And if we look at the supernatural in particular, if we were to look at a person who had no supernatural belief, we would find that they generally still have a bias towards anthropomorphizing the world Uh, That's a very natural human behavior that uh, kind of emerges from how our brains view the world. We also find that people with no belief in the supernatural are still likely to ascribe and accept purpose-based explanations for natural phenomena. Uh, That includes trained scientists, even scientists who study evolution. Um, Our brains just tend to do that. Uh, I think that is related to the fact that we're social primates, and one of our primary orientations in the world is a, is a drive to learn how to relate to um, other humans, but we have no intrinsic understanding of what other human is when we're born, so evolution has gifted us with this impulse to seek out other beings, other entities that are capable of the kind of empathetic socialization that we are capable of And uh, the hardware doesn't shut off when we're no longer babies. It just keeps running. In fact, Oxford believes that uh, two of those factors, the anthropomorphizing our world and accepting purpose-based explanations for observed phenomena, are some of the ingredients that uh, lead to the almost universal conceptions of God or creators across human civilizations. So it seems like the seeds for a worldview that in some way incorporates the supernatural— whether that's simply an unseen realm or an unseen creator or even something as simple as superstition, it seems almost universal among the human species. I know a number of uh, atheists who are even anti-theists who believe religious belief is um, unwise and say that superstition is a a dangerous root of religion who are in small ways superstitious themselves. And they will admit that if you give them enough bourbon. So um, even uh, people who are working to be rigorous, disciplined thinkers and dispel any notion of the supernatural from their life, well, they still seem to have the same biases that all of us do. Of course, we also associate spiritual experiences with various God networks in our brains that mainly incorporate the emotional and sensory areas of the brain. So people who tend to be more religious or more spiritual or feel a more personal connection with god uh, those their, their networks the the there's no god spot in the brain but the networks of their brain that are responsible for their understanding of god tends to incorporate more brain structures in for example what we would call the limbic area of the brain the emotional center of the brain or the the paleo mammalian part of the brain to use an old term from the triune brain model, as well as going up into the occipital lobe and the parietal lobe. Um, Both of those uh, brain areas of the neocortex, especially the parietal lobe, are associated with the transformation of nerve impulses into sensation. And we find that for people who have deep experiences with the divine or spiritual experiences, that's the part of the brain that's activated. Now we also understand through research that it seems some people have an innate orientation towards a more, I would call, cerebral theological disposition. So these people, uh, whether they, you know, reject belief in God or people who are just really into theology more than the experience of faith, their God network in their brain tends to be more strongly associated with the rational, analytical, and reductive portions of the neocortex, particularly the prefrontal cortex, and particularly the left prefrontal cortex, in people for whom uh, the left hemisphere is their reductive hemisphere. Some people's brains are upside down compared to everyone else's, so uh, you can't oversimplify that. But for most of the population, we would associate this God network being kind of centered around the left prefrontal cortex. So there we start to get a little picture that uh, brains can have different dispositions towards how they process ideas about God and therefore the supernatural. And from that, here's where I move into what is purely my opinion, my conjecture based on reading all of this research. I tend to think of most brains as being on a spectrum of propensity towards religiosity or even supernatural belief. So we have this spectrum, you can imagine before us, and on one side you have people who are not very likely to accept and experience supernatural ideas, and on the other end you have people who are very, very likely, and then you have people in the middle. I also imagine, based on my life experience, that there's kind of a bell curve distribution on that spectrum, that most people are somewhere in the middle and people on the far ends are very rare. people on on one far side tend to be atheists or tend to be uh, you know, really, really heady theologians. and on the other end are people who are experiential mystics. so it really doesn't matter what you say. no amount of rational argument can debase them of uh, of the power of their frequent spiritual and mystical experiences. These people we might call uh, prophets, we might call them contemplatives. Now, so there's this spectrum. How much of that is innate? How much of that is conditioned? I have no idea. I think it's probably reasonable to assume that we sit on different parts of that spectrum at birth, and then our life experiences, both personal and social, will tend to move us along the spectrum as we go through life. That has certainly happened to me Uh, I used to be very, very likely to accept notions of the supernatural. Then for a while, I was very unlikely. And now, well, now I'm somewhere in the middle. You know, today, I don't have much, if any, intellectual assent to notions of the supernatural. I don't really have a supernatural worldview. And yet, my intuition is much more accepting of supernatural notions based on my personal experiences. I love to hear people talk about their supernatural notions, even if in my epistemology I reject that. And that that might sound ridiculous to rigorous thinkers. Uh, I think in my own way I'm being rigorous by, one, demonstrating that I don't think there's a lot of empirical evidence that supports the supernatural, so I don't make assumptions in how I communicate with others or make public policy based on that. And yet, I also understand empirically that uh, supernatural notions do something fascinating to human brains and I like to explore that. And I don't feel any sense of shame over that, right? So then the spectrum gets complicated for me. I move through social circles that are atheistic, non-theistic, theistic, theistic, even animistic. And I feel at home in all of them. And I'm just so comfortable with it these days. And people in most of those circles tend to get tend to be uncomfortable. My theist friends don't like my epistemology. My atheistic friends uh, are disappointed by my openness to spiritual experiences. And, you know, to each their own. (laughs) And uh, this whole ramble is to get actually to the heart of your question. Is there some way for a brain to always reject belief in the supernatural regardless of conditioning? Not that I'm aware of from a developmental perspective. I believe any child who is taught by their caregivers that the supernatural exists will accept that. And in doing so, will accept a notion of the supernatural. Um now there could be some condition or disorder that I'm unaware of. Um and I did try to look and, and do some research where, you know, even young children automatically reject notions in the supernatural. But I actually think that would probably create some attachment trauma, uh, because one of the ways that we grow to appreciate a creator or supernatural phenomenon is as children we believe that our 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 mother, our primary caregiver, is all knowing, and then we learn we get disenfranchised that our primary caregiver is not all knowing, but then that kind of gets mapped onto this unseen part of the universe that becomes God. Um, that seems to be a really necessary and normative function in the formation of human psychology. So I, I think it's very unlikely that there's brains out there that automatically reject the supernatural. But I do think it's possible, through conditioning and development over time, to produce a brain that no longer will accept notions of the supernatural. Now, could that be permanent? Could you get kind of locked or pegged on one side of this spectrum where you absolutely always reject notions of the supernatural? Maybe. Maybe. Especially if there's some trauma there, that if the rejection of the supernatural is a way of coping with traumatic events in the past. uh, But then that wouldn't be like an intellectual ascent. That would be a psychological defensive affect. It's a fascinating question. I hope that uh, my very (laughs) long-winded answer, just kind of speculating, uh, was useful and helpful, and I so appreciated you sending in such an interesting question. This episode of Ask Science Mike was made possible by my friends at BetterHelp, and BetterHelp is an online, affordable, private, online counseling service that's available anytime and anywhere through your computer or mobile device. Sometimes finding a therapist is so hard that people avoid finding a therapist. I mean, how do you know who's qualified to help you with your challenges? What do you do if you feel uncomfortable with the person? How do you find time and space in your day to go to the therapist's office? Well, BetterHelp has solved all of those problems by connecting over 6,000 licensed therapists with now over 800,000 people around the world. When you work with BetterHelp, you work with a licensed mental health professional specializing in a variety of life challenges and growth issues. To get started, all you've got to do is go to BetterHelp.com slash Science and fill out a questionnaire, and BetterHelp will connect you with a counselor that I believe you'll love. I am a paying BetterHelp subscriber it's the way I do therapy today to work through my life challenges, and I find it very wonderful to be able to sit in my office, at home, on the phone, or on a video chat with my therapist at a time that's convenient to me. It's secure, it's affordable, available on a sliding scale. In fact, and you can get ten percent off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com/slash/scienceMike. So why not? Get started on the work that will help lead you to a more fulfilling and satisfying life today by visiting my friends at BetterHelp. One more time, that's BetterHelp.com slash Science Mike. Our next question came in via email and it reads, Hey Science Mike, I had a question about the pros and cons of electric car production and manufacturing and the real change in reducing the effects of climate change, even if that is a small change. Some of the criticisms I've heard surrounding electric cars are, number one, the large battery packs are useless after their lifespan of less than 10 years in some cases, and once the battery packs are used up, they sit in the landfill because they can't be recycled anyway. Number two, using electric cars doesn't help with the greenhouse gas emissions that much because you're still getting... Electricity from your local power plant, which in lots of cases is still not coming from a renewable energy source. And number three, the production of these cars may be manufactured from a plant that doesn't use a renewable energy source. The more electric cars that are sold equals more emissions from the factory that are released, therefore offsetting the benefit of a traditional gas powered car. I know the local benefits of pollution are a definite pro of owning an electric car. And since I thought I heard you say you own one, I'd like to know your thoughts. Thanks for your work and taking the time on this question. Jake. Well, Jake, you are right. I do have an electric car. It's a Fiat 500E. It's a tiny little vehicle, and I love it. Uh, I love it because it's easy to park, because it's small. It was uh, less carbon intensive to manufacture and requires less energy to operate. So it charges quickly and has a pretty good range, even with a relatively small battery. It's just overall a really efficient way to travel if you are traveling in a car. Which the first point I would make is whether you're driving a gas-powered car or a battery electric vehicle. That's a whole lot less efficient than taking mass transit where available. Uh, so we'll start there. That even if you have a battery electric vehicle, uh, you are still being relatively inefficient in your carbon footprint just based on. All that cars require, all the roads, all the road maintenance, the energy to operate one vehicle, uh, it's just its just not very efficient. But kind of going to the specific points in your question, I'll kind of take them piece by piece. Um, the large battery packs are not useless after they're used in a car. The battery packs, which are these days typically lithium-ion cells, uh, are still very usable when they're no longer reusable in an EV. They have up to 80% of their charging capacity remaining and then make excellent energy storage reservoirs for our power grid, especially as we move towards renewable sources of energy whose power output is not as consistent as fossil fuels. So if you have wind plants or solar plants, uh, you can create large um, storage reservoirs of energy using batteries and old electric car batteries are one source of um battery power to put on the grid. Uh now, after that, you're right, the batteries are difficult to recycle. It's not impossible. Uh, but right now it takes, for example, uh, to get the lithium back out of these lithium-ion battery packs, uh, is about five times as energy and cost intensive as getting lithium from a mine. And uh That's not great. Now, we're improving methods, but it is a problem. We also likely don't have enough recycling capacity for the amount of electric vehicles being sold, and so we will have a great reckoning a few years from now um, unless we start building the infrastructure ahead of time. So, point one, large battery packs are useless. That's not true. They can be used for a long time on the grid, and then ultimately they can be recycled. Uh, The the only point there is that right now there might be insufficient recycling capacity for the number of batteries out there. Uh, Point two, saying electric cars don't help with greenhouse gas emissions. There's a grain of truth there. It is true that battery electric vehicles produce much more carbon emissions when they're manufactured, and that is because of the battery. Batteries are very energy intensive to produce compared to vehicles. That produces something called a carbon debt. The difference between what a gas power car would create to, uh, (laughs) the difference between how much carbon it takes to make a gas car versus a battery electric vehicle is the carbon debt, and that gets paid off over time. Depending on the car you get and your driving habits, that can be between two and four years, Um, and then eventually over the life of a vehicle, say eight or ten years, which we're finding batteries in. electric vehicles are lasting longer than we thought, not less long, uh, that carbon debt gets paid off, and then it tilts dramatically in favor of the electric vehicle. It can be half or more uh, the total lifetime carbon emissions for a battery electric vehicle versus a reasonable uh, compact car, right? So if you compare a battery electric vehicle with something like an SUV, then it gets outrageous, the the advantage. Even if you get a battery electric SUV versus a gas powered SUV, those advantages increase. SUVs are really bad for the environment, everybody. They are really not great. Um so that's interesting, right? The the offset uh is paid back over time because of the very low carbon emissions. And also battery electric vehicles get greener over time as our power grids move more and more towards renewables. So if you get a fuel efficient hybrid uh or a fuel efficient non-hybrid vehicle, its kind of carbon output is fixed, but we're seeing the carbon output of battery vehicles decline as we put more wind and solar and other renewable forms of energy on the grid. So the only places kind of left in the United States uh, where the emission question is even close is in the Midwest, where there's a lot of coal power. In the rest of the country, it's, it's really not close at all uh, in terms of ongoing emissions, uh, which kind of gets to that grid point, right? Um and also kind of covers the factory thing. Um Now, there is one important caveat I'd like to to say. Uh it takes 2 to 4 years depending on driving patterns to pay off your carbon debt. Uh which means buying a new battery vehicle every 3 years say on a lease is probably producing more carbon than you would just continuing to own um an existing Gas powered vehicle. Uh, in general, we're not going to buy our way out of climate change. So, what happens is companies like Tesla give this really great image of, like, wow, you can have a sexy, fast car and save the plant. It's not true. It, that's just not true. Uh, if we want to meaningfully impact climate change, we have to buy less things, we have to buy them less often. That means holding on to cars for a long time. So if you're going, if you've got a vehicle that's worn out, or you have an incredibly carbon-intensive vehicle, say a large pickup truck, or 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 an older vehicle that has um, less emissions controls on the tailpipe, and you want to buy a vehicle, by all means, buy a battery electric vehicle. But then keep it for six or eight or ten years, and that's going to start making some difference, especially if you, as much as possible use public transportation to get from point A to point B. That's going to make all the difference in the world. Um, So there's no question in most uses use case scenarios, there's less local pollution and less carbon emissions over the life of a battery electric vehicle. When compared to hybrid vehicles or traditional, even fuel efficient gas powered vehicles And that gets only more dramatic as you move into more carbon-intensive forms of personal transportation, like SUVs and pickup trucks. Uh, So they're a clear winner, but don't let that win lull you into buying habits that are ultimately undermining what you're trying to do. If you're getting a new battery vehicle every three years, you're probably not saving that much carbon compared to driving a gas-powered
2: car. Hi, Mike. I have a question about the placebo effect. As I think about some of the more spiritual, mystical, religious teachers that talk about the power of the mind and our mental ability to uh, control circumstances or energies or healing or faith, um, I wonder if the placebo effect is a suggestion that there might be something toward that. If taking a sugar pill while being convinced that that pill holds real power can heal you, is it potentially evidence that simply our own minds can do some of the work that we wouldn't think we could traditionally do? I don't know if this question is really scientific in any way, shape, or form. I could probably do some Googling, but I'm such a big fan of your show and the way you articulate and share your ideas that I thought I'd ask you feel very safe and comfortable asking in this setting. Thanks.
0: Well, thank you for your question. It's exactly why the show exists. I want people to ask questions they don't feel comfortable asking other places. So thank you for being brave and sending in your question. And uh, absolutely, the placebo effect is real. And it's not the same as doing nothing or having no intervention. The placebo effect is more effective than doing nothing. And the way that we judge the success of a given treatment option today in our modern medicine is it has to outperform placebo, which implies what? That placebo does perform. Now, really interesting to me when we talk about placebo pills when we're testing medications in pill form, did you know that the color of the placebo pill influences the size of the effect? And even more powerful is the size of the pill. So if you give somebody a really big placebo pill and have them swallow that, the effect of the placebo in the study gets bigger. <laughs> Isn't that wild? So if you're giving a pill with literally completely inert ingredients that ingredients that are not, you know, bioactive in any way, the fact that it's a bigger pill makes the effect of the placebo effect larger or the impact of the placebo effect larger. I just think that's really interesting. There's also uh, the placebo effect's evil twin called the nocebo effect, which is also real. And the nocebo effect is when you give someone a placebo and you tell them a list of possible side effects, then people experience those side effects even though they didn't take the medication that causes those side effects. Which also means that when we're taking actual medication and we know what the side effects are, we are more likely to experience those side effects. Isn't that wild? We have seen that when we started talking about gluten insensitivity, more people started to have reactions to gluten. But what's interesting is in trials, you can give people food items and tell them that there's gluten in it. And people who believe they're gluten insensitive will have allergic reactions to a food item that does not contain gluten because of the nocebo effect what does this tell me it tells me that our minds are very powerful now why is this energy is this the power of the spirit is this mind ever matter i don't think so i think our minds emerge from our brain body system your mind is is part of you. It's, a, it's an outcome of these physical processes, which means what? Every thought you have and every feeling that you experience is an honest-to-goodness physiological change in your body. So, of course, our minds impact the functioning of our body. Everything our minds do happens in our bodies. That's why I've been so into embodiment lately. I'm just learning to admit the obvious, that any sense I had that my intellect was separate from my physicality was an illusion the whole time. And do you know, I have been feeling so much better lately. I've made big changes in how I eat. I've made changes in my workload. I've made changes in my life and relationships, all based on a medical crisis. And in that medical crisis with heart disease, I was told that a significant factor in my heart disease was anxiety. And my my eating is linked with anxiety, so in order to continue to eat food items that support my health, I had to address the anxiety so I didn't medicate constantly through food. And I've had really major changes in how my body feels not just based on the dietary changes or the, or the changes in daily activity, but especially based on significant work in therapy. I did a week of group intensive therapy at a place called OnSite at the beginning of this year, and I've noticed that my digestive health is wildly improved, that my my stomach and intestines are not so sensitive. I've noticed improved sexual function and increased libido, and much, much less chronic pain. I'd already had less because of changing my food. And now I just i don't know that I have any chronic pain. And I've had chronic pain for almost 20 years. Um, so what does this tell me? Addressing not only my lifestyle, but my feelings is changing how my body feels and changing my medical outcomes. And why is this? It's because our emotions are physiological. When we feel anxious, when we feel sad on an ongoing basis, we feel depressed, we feel frustrated or angry over long periods of time, these are chemical responses in our body that can produce things like inflammation. Now, inflammation gets thrown around all the time. When I talk about inflammation, I'm speaking specifically of Tissue sensitivity resulting from an ongoing uh, immunoresponse or other uh, mechanism in the body that's causing actual measurable tissue inflammation. Uh, but those th- that is absolutely real. We know that difficult feelings over time impact our bodies. And addressing that impacts our health outcomes. Now, this should not create a pattern where we disregard the effectiveness of modern medicine in treating significant health issues. I am not saying you can happy your way out of cancer. If you have cancer, you should seek out the treatment of an oncologist. You should not rely on a guru to cure you of cancer. That would be unwise and dangerous. But it also tells me that modern medicine has, it has a tendency to treat the body as separate from the mind and from the emotions, and that looks very short-sighted. It seems to me our overall healthcare expenditures and our overall quality of life as a society would be improved if we incorporated mental health and emotional health into our body health models. And our failure to do that Is where the growth of pseudoscience and homeopathic medicine and faith healing and woo come from. Because when you go see a homeopathic healer, they sit with you and they listen to you and they pay attention to you and they empathize with you and they don't treat you like a set of diagnostic criteria on a clipboard. Our medical system would be wise to incorporate not only the incredible findings in modern psychology about health outcomes, but the interpersonal dynamics and interaction from other forms of, dare I say, treatment. When people feel better because of a faith healer, or from a guru, or one of these spiritual experts. It's because that person creates an emotional connection. Now, often the, they're, they're also engaging in fraud, whether they know it or not. There are things in life, there are medical issues, that simply will not be cured or addressed by positive thinking. But I, I don't think people are dumb. I don't think people are, are foolish for seeking out other forms of treatment when modern medicine doesn't actually make them feel better. I think we have a systemic problem that can be addressed. That's why, uh, by the way, I partner with Hillary McBride so much, Um, other than I just adore her, is her insights on mental health. I think the more people like Hillary are known and become popular the more the medical community will pay attention to the power of human psychology to influence medical outcomes and quality of life. That's why my next book is all, all about mental health. Um, because I think these things are important. And I think in, in significant ways our society has gone to um, to really unfortunate places in how we relate to health. So I hope that answer is helpful and useful kind of as you navigate and think through um, the power of the mind in relationship to healing. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hey Mike, I grew up evangelical, but over the course of a year of deconstruction and traumatic experiences ended up largely leaving my faith behind. In the aftermath, I had to piece back together some semblance of purpose for myself and reconstruct my identity. I rediscovered spirituality through mysticism, in part thanks to the liturgists, and i have been able to include some of the most important aspects of my old Christian faith within that. But I also brought with me the values I had acquired during my faithless period, one of which is support and affirmation towards LGBTQIA plus identities. I firmly believe that all identities should be welcomed, and embraced within the body of Christ. My question is, how do I talk about this with my traditionally conservative Christian friends? I have not yet found convincing arguments that the Bible allows or affirms non-traditional identities or relationships, and the only honest response I have to their but the Bible says is my saying, I don't care. I don't feel right staying silent When talking to my Christian friends, because I know the harm the church continues to cause queer people. But I don't know how to communicate why the church's treatment of them is so wrong when the person I'm talking to is operating under the belief of infallibility of a text, which I no longer consider infallible. Any advice you can give is greatly appreciated. Thank you for everything you do. Well, thank you so much uh, for caring. You know, I've, I've followed a similar path in my life, as you probably know, if you've heard me on the Liturgist podcast. Uh, I grew up a, a conservative religious fundamentalist in the evangelical tradition. I was not affirming of same-sex marriages or um, anything other than traditional male and female gender identities. Um, then I became an atheist, and I realized there was no non-religious objection to those identities and relationships. And then when I came back to faith, um, boy, it was I would rather at the time continue to affirm LGBTQIA plus people than accept, you know, the teachings of Paul. Now, there are resources out there for people who still hold, you know, this infallible view of scripture. There are arguments you can make. Um, from a scriptural basis to include LGBT people in the church. There are eloquent arguments that are made, and they are all over the place. Um, and they won't help most people because human beliefs aren't generally something we arrive at through you know, cognition and rational analysis. So when someone says, but the Bible says, they are not inviting you to create a reasoned counter-argument, but the Bible says is something that's coming from deeper in their brain. In my next book, which is called You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, I uh, describe the brain using a a metaphor, and we have multiple layers of our brain and something called the triune brain model. Now, that's an older model, but it's still useful for understanding how we experience the world. And uh, there's basically three layers of our brain in that model. There's a reptilian brain, there's a paleomammalian brain, also known as the limbic system, and there's a neomammalian, a portion of the brain, uh, known as the neocortex. And I visualize that as your brain basically being a person standing on a puppy standing on a crocodile. And I in the book, I talk about you know how those three work together in our daily life experiences and how that can explain some of our behaviors that confuse us. why we sometimes do things that we don't want to do, to use Paul's phrasing. But in this situation, when I'm trying to talk to someone I disagree with on uh, an issue of controversy, I understand that each layer of the brain is asking a different question. And I realize you can't talk to layers that are higher until you address the question of a layer that's lower. So the crocodile's question about the world, the reptile brain's question is, am I safe? What they care about is physical safety and security. The puppy's question is, do I belong? Our feeling brain wants to make sure that we belong socially. And then finally, the person that I generally picture wearing glasses and reading a newspaper uh, says, what does this mean? So if you start to talk about what does this mean with someone who says, but the Bible says, what you need to understand is the crocodile in that question is going, am I safe? Am I safe? This is new information. This is different than what I was taught as a child. And things that are different than what I was taught as a child are frightening. They can mean I'm not safe. Now, why? Because for human people, the puppy is powerful. Our social brains are powerful. We can't survive on our own. So if the puppy questions if I belong or not, then the crocodile immediately questions, am I safe? So you have to set up a relationship with a person where they feel safe talking with you, where they feel like you know, their, their confidence won't be betrayed where they can be curious, where they will also not be judged. This is slow, difficult work. And then the puppies question, what the Bible says, basically they're asking, if I accept what you're saying, I'm going to be rejected by people. It has nothing to do, in most cases, with an analysis of Scripture and more with an authority figure in my social community has said that this information is not allowed, and anyone who accepts it does not belong. And that's why non-affirming theology is so sticky. It's not, in most cases, again, because people have a certain hermeneutic to their scriptures. It's because they have a social identity. And the reason in the church— LGBTQIA theology is so divisive and so controversial is two groups feel unsafe and at risk of belonging because of the discussion. If you're not affirming you're afraid that if you become affirming, you'll be rejected. You've also been conditioned by many theologies to believe that your very soul is imperiled by accepting these ideas, the ultimate not-safe is eternal conscious torment in hell. So that's very sticky in the brain. Meanwhile, LGBTQ people feel very unsafe because these positions threaten their very right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. LGBTQ people are actually unsafe because of these theologies. So for people like you, my friend, there's a very important opportunity here to wade into conversations that simply are not safe for LGBTQ Christians to have. You, and this, this is difficult work, will probably require therapeutic support on an ongoing basis, but you can have ongoing conversations with a few people at a time where you can make them feel safe and not judged make them feel a sense of belonging as they work through these ideas and don't talk to the person or if you talk to the person talk to the puppy and the crocodile at least as much and the way you do that is you tell stories that promote empathy and share feelings over time that's more effective than just coming up with a convincing scriptural argument now don't get me wrong i've worked through a lot of the the scriptural notions what does this word mean what's the difference that that Paul's using man bed for example these these translations what's uh yeah what's different between the conceptions of gender and sexuality in that society versus this one a sophisticated hermeneutic can be helpful you know i can go there i just don't i don't like to i don't <laughs> um i'm i'm a rare person if paul actually is against same sex marriages i just say paul is wrong um but I also think Paul would have no idea what we're talking about. He lived in a very different society. So there's a humaneutic there. But what I'm saying is this is the wrapping paper and not the gift. This is the icing and not the cake. What is at the center is empathetic stories and the sharing of feelings. So if you can talk about the the impacts on this theology on friends that you have, if you can talk about it in an empathetic way, your growth and transformation and what it's meant for you, and the growth and transformation of other people and tell stories of transformation, that will be the most effective thing that you can do, uh, both for yourself, for the people in question, and for the LGBTQ people whose very lives are threatened by this theology. Did you know that every week on Ask Science Mike, I include resources for most questions on the show in our show notes? So if you go to asksciencemike.com and find episode 212, that's the episode you're listening to right now, I'll have links and additional resources for many of the questions that were on this week's program. I want to thank you so much for listening, for leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. I want to thank all of my patrons for making the show financially possible and doing the work of picking the questions that appears on the air. I want to thank Caitlin Hermstad for producing the show, Greg Nordine for production and sound design, Andrew Golucky for pre-production, and Brett Cradle for management services. Of course, Jeb Bodiford wrote and recorded the Ask Science Mike theme song, and I'm so grateful to him for that. Thank you for listening, my friends, and I can't wait to speak with you next week.